So yesterday was May 2nd. And uh, if you guys know anything about me, you know that on Fridays, uh, I'm out doing like garage sales. I'm, I'm hitting garage sales all around town and everything. And uh, on Friday, I, I was really troubled. If you don't follow me on Facebook, uh, if you do follow me on Facebook, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't follow me on Facebook, uh, let me tell you what I saw on Friday. Uh, we drove by um, possibly the biggest church in Linwood, at least, at least the second biggest, maybe the biggest church in Linwood. And up on their big flashy marquee, uh, they were advertising that Saturday they were celebrating Labyrinth Day. Now, if you don't know what Labyrinth Day is, I, I, I immediately, red flags started going off, right? And, and Christine and I are driving, and I'm like, can you Google that on your phone and, and let me know exactly what Labyrinth Day is? And so here, here it is. They've, they've actually got a website. Uh, this is what Labyrinth Day is. It says, celebrate the seventh annual World Labyrinth Day on Saturday, May 2nd. The Labyrinth Society invites you to walk as one at one in the afternoon, joining others around the globe to create a wave of peaceful energy washing across the time zones. And it goes on to say uh, that there are 11 ways to celebrate World Labyrinth Day. Number one is to, to walk as one at one. Uh, number two is to trace or draw a finger labyrinth on paper uh, or using a smartphone or tablet app. Uh, facilitate or join a, wa- a group walk, uh, join uh, or host a lecture, workshop, art ex- exhibition, or tour. And this is all about creating this worldwide energy, which should sound very, very wrong to us, because this is all very occultic. And the reason that I was so troubled, I mean, this is the type of thing that really makes my blood boil. I mean, uh, if there's anything that makes me mad... It's seeing some, some church or some Christian or some professing Christian doing something that is obviously wrong, something that involves walking in darkness. It's not just morally wrong. This is like a New Age mysticism type thing that we're talking about. It's evil. It's, it's demonic. And I think there's something in all of us that recognizes that when somebody is professing fellowship with God, somebody is professing to be a Christian, their lifestyle should correspond with that claim. Everybody agree with that? I mean, the world sees the same thing. They say, oh, you guys are such hypocrites. You're against sin, and yet you guys sin, right? And, and, and so they, they call us hypocrites, and we're going to cover that today, by the way. But that's what we're going to be talking about, the fact that our actions should line up with our profession of faith. And when it doesn't, There's a problem. The person who is legitimately converted to Christianity, being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, must be supremely concerned with the will of God. And I have to say that somebody who's practicing this type of mystic sorcery and whatever, new age energy making stuff, can't honestly make the claim that they are supremely concerned with the will of God, because it's clearly forbidden in Scripture. Now, as we saw a couple weeks ago, as we began our study in 1 John, um, we saw that uh, that what John is saying, this was what the Lord uh, Jesus himself had shared with John. So this is firsthand testimony. And we saw that there was a difference uh, between what the world will hear when they stand before Jesus 
and what the believer will hear when they stand before Jesus. Some will go before Jesus and hear, they'll say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. And his people will go before him and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. For the professing Christian whose actions and their lifestyle don't match up with their profession of faith and who is therefore less than supremely concerned with doing God's will, we saw that there are only two options. Number one is that they are a legitimate convert and yet they are wayward. They're, they're in a, a state of rebellion. They're maybe spiritually immature and they need to spiritually grow up. That's the first option. The second option is they're not converted at all and they've completely deceived themselves. Dead in their sins. And neither of these two options is good and yet there is a world of difference between somebody who is legitimately converted and somebody who is not legitimately converted. The question is, how do we know which one's which? Because while Jesus said there would always be tares among the wheat, in other words, in other words uh, there would always be unbelievers active in the church in this age, in, in our gatherings. And therefore, we, we wouldn't be able to consistently distinguish wheat from tares correctly, uh, and thus it's not our job to do so. He also did say that we know a tree by its fruit. And John's going to help us with this issue today. The book of 1 John is about gaining a greater sense of assurance of our salvation. And throughout this book, what John is going to do is he's going to put forth, he's going to lay out several tests, if you will, to determine whether our lives are bearing good fruit or bearing bad fruit. And as such, just like it's a book that should help the, the legitimate Christian uh, gain a stronger sense of assurance of their salvation. It's also a book that should cause us to be very, very concerned if we see that our lives don't line up with the tests that John is going to lay out before us. Now, in the first few verses of the book, John told us that fellowship with God and, and also with, with God's people is available exclusively through Christ Jesus. And this relationship is founded on one very simple principle uh, and, and not so simple principle, which we covered last week, and that is that God is light, and in him is no darkness. What that means is that whatever light is or whatever light does, in a physical sense, God is and God does on a spiritual sense. Uh, light reveals things physically. God reveals things spiritually. He revealed himself fully through his son. He reveals our sin as he's used as the measuring stick for our moral goodness. He reveals our sin in comparison to himself. And therefore, he reveals our need for a savior. Not just any savior, but for a perfect savior. The fact that God is light has some very serious practical implications for the believer, which John is about to begin expanding on for us. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open, go ahead and open your Bibles to, to uh, 1 John chapter 1. And as you look at this first chapter, and, and feeding also into the second chapter, what you'll see is that after verse 5, 
just look at the verses that, that follow after verse 5, and you'll see that John proceeds to lay out five consecutive clauses that begin with if. These are if-then clauses, uh, the first two of which we will be examining today. And these clauses, these if clauses, if-then clauses, are there to help us understand what the implications are of God being light, as these are designed to contrast God's holy and perfect character with the character of those who profess, whether rightly or wrongly, to have fellowship with God. Some of you may remember uh, back when there were uh, newspapers that everybody read regularly. These days, some people read newspapers. Some, some people will uh, you know, just find their stuff on the Internet, find the news on the Internet. But there used to be these cartoons uh, that you would find in the newspapers, which would have two pictures right next to each other, and the goal was to find the differences between these two pictures. It was called Spot the Differences or something like that. And that's essentially the same thing that John is going to do with these if-then clauses. He'll contrast, he'll show us the differences between the characteristics of false converts with the characteristics of true believers for us. And by doing this, John will reveal a beautiful or harsh reality. That being whether or not a person is legitimately Uh, should legitimately have assurance of their salvation. And what we'll see is that there is a huge difference between the two. And we'll see how far removed from godliness and how far removed from divine blessings some people who are present or participating in in the church, the universal church, the church worldwide, uh, can, can possibly be. Now, John's told us a part of his intention in writing to this church was to establish fellowship between his audience and God and to establish fellowship between his audience and himself. He he kind of uses a collective we in order that our joy may be full. Uh, So John considers himself to be a part of this worldwide church, and he's establishing an invitation to bring people in. And again, this fellowship with God is established on the principle, the foundational principle, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And immediately following that statement, John's going to expand on that and tell us exactly what some of the implications for that are. So he continues writing in verse 6. He says this, If we say, if we say, We have fellowship with him. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That is a scary verse. And rightfully so. Just like you would be nervous about answering, you know, some some questions on, uh, you know, a final in school. Uh, you You should take this with a lot of seriousness. Now, we should start remembering that fellowship, by the way, isn't just hanging out with other Christians and having a good time together and talking and doing stuff together. It can be that. Uh, It probably should be that, but it's also much more. The Greek term is koinonia, which really implies or, or means having all things in common with one another. And looking at what John has said in its context... A person who claims, who says that they're a child of God, who says that they are a Christian, is claiming to have this koinonia, this this fellowship with God. The Gnostic teachers 
that had left John's audience so completely confused claimed to have fellowship with God. They said that they had fellowship with God. They were claiming to be Christians. And John is well aware of the fact that there are people in Christian circles who claim to have this intimacy with God in which they have all things in common with Him, and yet they are simultaneously living in a way that is completely contrary to what His holy character demands from His people. And this is what we would call hypocrisy. This is extreme hypocrisy. And that's one of the things that Jesus was constantly addressing throughout his ministry. That's why there was so much friction between him and the religious leaders of his day. As part of my, um, my sermon prep every week, every week as I'm, I'm preparing to, to preach on a passage or, or a verse, I, I try to read commentaries. I, I listen to sermons on the passage or, or verses that I'll be preaching from. And this week was no different. I was listening to one, and I was flabbergasted as I went through a sermon that was preached about 50 years ago by one preacher, who who I should add is typically very, very good, really good stuff. Uh, But he tried desperately to change the meaning of fellowship in this context. What he was trying to say was that John is really talking about people who are Christians but who are living carnal lives and that there's this mystical reason that they're, they're not living lives. It's because they're not tapping into this higher fellowship thing. He said that John was telling us that it's possible to have a relationship with God without having fellowship with God. And I thought, that's not right. You know, that, that's, that's, that's a little odd. He says, quote, It is possible to be a Christian and yet walk in darkness by turning God off. And throughout this sermon, this preacher was saying that a legitimately converted Christian can bear nothing but bad fruit their entire life and yet still have the assurance of heaven because while they don't have fellowship with God, they have a relationship with God. And I don't see a difference between the two. I don't think John is making a distinction between having a relationship with God and having fellowship with God. It is simply not true that a Christian can walk their whole lives in darkness and yet have the assurance of salvation. Because John isn't talking about Christians who just aren't walking the walk. He's not talking about carnal and spiritual Christians or obedient Christians. He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about these Gnostic teachers who were not Christians. And as such, John is not saying that you can have assurance of your salvation if you continue walking in darkness throughout your entire life. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He doesn't say that those who follow him might choose to walk in darkness from time to time. He says they will not walk in darkness, period. That is, they will bear good fruit. They can't bear nothing but bad fruit their entire lives. It is impossible to be a Christian and yet walk in darkness by turning God off. 
The true Christian who's been truly converted is never, never able to walk in the darkness. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. They may try to walk in darkness, but the Lord... What what happens when a believer walks in darkness or tries to walk in darkness? The Lord is quick to discipline them if, and this is a big if, if they are truly His. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 8 reminds us, if you are left without discipline in which all, all believers have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The principle there is God doesn't spank the neighbor's kids, but he does discipline every child that he receives, everyone that belongs to him, so that they won't walk in darkness. Because that's where our our, our habits, that's where our, our fallen nature will lead us. And God disciplines us so that we won't. And that's not to say, by the way, that's not to say that a Christian cannot sin. Of course we can sin. We do it all the time. In fact, John tells us in verse 8 that we deceive ourselves if we claim we have no sin. So of course we can sin. Now while this epistle is a warning against carnal worldliness for Christians... That warning comes because there is no such thing as a worldly Christian. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. That's an oxymoron. As Paul Washer points out, John didn't say uh, in in chapter 5 where he's talking about the ultimate purpose for this letter. John didn't say, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know whether you are spiritual or carnal Christians. That's not what he says. No, John's saying that this is the first test of true conversion, whether or not we walk in the darkness. He's saying that some people will say one thing. They'll say that they have fellowship with God, and yet they act in a way which contradicts that claim. That is, they walk in the darkness. And that therefore our actions bear more weight than our profession, than our our words. Now we should back up a minute here, because we should probably establish what it means to walk in darkness, shouldn't we? What does it mean to, uh, to, to walk in darkness? Does it mean that you never sin? Does committing one sin mean that we're, we're walking in the darkness? Is John saying that if we sin at all, we should fear for our salvation? Absolutely not. We can be sure that that's not what he's saying because, again, in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So what does it mean then, what does it mean to walk in the darkness? In a nutshell, walking in the darkness refers to the way a person conducts themselves or lives their lives in general over the course of uh, a long period of time, maybe their entire life. That is, walking in the dark isn't so much just sinning in a general or generic sense uh, as it is to live in constant and continual sin, and to feel no remorse about it and no need to repent of it. The person who bears bad fruit and that they dwell or they abide contently, consistently, and unrepentantly in a lifestyle which reflects absolutely no concern for the will of God has no fellowship with God. But remember this, just like it would be a huge mistake for a person to become 
uh, confident of their assurance based on one good act that they did. Say, say they, you know, they do all these bad things and then they do one good thing and that was 20 years ago. Just like it would be foolish for them to have a sense of assurance based on that one act, it would be equally foolish to lose confidence of our standing before God uh, and believe ourselves to be under his wrath, to be under his condemnation based on one slip into sin. In order to correctly judge our standing before God, we must examine the entirety of our lives. Ask yourself questions like, how have you, how have you grown in your desire for pursuing the will of God since your conversion? As you look over the past years, or maybe months, do you see yourself becoming transformed into the likeness of Christ? Do you see yourself becoming more or less interested in living a life that's pleasing to God? We here in Seattle love Russell Wilson, don't we? Does anybody in here not know who Russell Wilson is? Oh, there is somebody. Russell Wilson is our quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, and he is Mr. Superstar, and we love him because he's so young, and yet he is so good. And so when you watch this guy play, sometimes it's like, how did he do that? You know, he's really good. The guy is one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and he's got a lot of years ahead of him, assuming, you know, no injuries or anything like that. And how would you prove that he's one of the best? Well, there are probably a lot of ways, but one thing you could do is you could put together a highlight reel of some of the greatest plays he's been involved in so far in his short career. But conversely, think about how easy it would be to make a case for the fact that he is the worst quarterback in the league. All you'd have to do is the opposite. Make, make a highlight reel of his failures. Make a highlight reel of all the times he's fumbled, all the times he's thrown interceptions, all the times he's been sacked because he held the ball too long, all the times he overthrew or underthrew his receivers. The truth is that if you're going to make your case based on snippets here and there, you can make the case either way. Same with somebody like Peyton Manning, who is... Possibly, and, and the argument is pretty solid that he's the greatest quarterback of all time. And yet, he's thrown tons of interceptions. He may have thrown more interceptions than Russell Wilson has thrown touchdowns in, in his career. And you could, you could prove that, that, that. He's just this awful quarterback, supposedly prove it, by showing this highlight of him doing all these, you know, making all these mistakes throughout his career and, and prove to somebody, quote-unquote prove, that he's the worst quarterback of all time. But to truly determine... To truly and accurately determine whether Russell Wilson or or Peyton Manning uh, are great quarterbacks, you would need to look at the whole picture. And likewise, it's not possible to either confirm our salvation based on one seemingly good act or to feel condemned because of one slip into, into failure, one slip into sin. Rather, we have to look at the whole picture. We have to examine our whole life since conversion and before that. You should see that there's a life that's changing, that's different, that's being transformed as we grow in conformity to God's character. Or do we see a life that remains ambivalent, maybe even hostile toward the will of God as revealed in His Word? 
This is what it means to walk in darkness. It's to live as if nothing about God has been revealed to you. Neither in nature, nor in his holy, inerrant, inspired word. It means to reject Christ, to hate God, and you prove it, not with your lips, but with your lifestyle. The way that you choose to act as if you are your own God. That's what it means to walk in darkness. And just like physical light can't occupy the same space as darkness, so too the holy and the profane cannot coexist simultaneously. We cannot walk in the dark and be in the light at the same time any more than you can create a round triangle. And likewise, we cannot rightfully or logically claim to belong to God and yet bear nothing but bad fruit throughout our entire lives because doing the will of God is not on our list of top priorities in life. So John's telling us in no uncertain terms that the person who claims to be a Christian and thus is is professing to have this fellowship with God and yet steadfastly lives a life of sin, lives a life of self-governance, that is living in the dark, doing what seems right in their own eyes without a hint of repentance, without a hint of remorse or a growing desire to please God and do His will, that person is a liar. You cannot have fellowship with God if you are in the darkness because in Him there is no darkness. He's light, and light drives out darkness. Paul asks the rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? What a great question. Because that makes sense to every single one of us. It doesn't matter where you live. That, that, that statement makes perfect sense. What fellowship, what, what do light and dark have in common? What do opposites have in common? Nothing. Anyone in any time in any place would realize that such a thing is logically impossible. Now John's really pointing out the tendency that humanity, all of humanity, has had ever since Adam and Eve sinned by defying God. What was Adam and Eve's response when God confronted them about their sin? They they went into this, I I call it lawyer mode, where where they just defend themselves and they're trying to exonerate themselves, prove their, their innocence, deny their guilt. They went into this lawyer mode in which they refused to own up to their own sin. Adam said, you can't blame me. This woman that you gave me, God, it's her fault. She made me do it. Go to Eve. Eve says, hey, it wasn't my fault. It was this crazy serpent that made me do it. Both of them go into this lawyer mode where they try to exonerate themselves. What did Cain do when he was confronted about the murder of his brother Abel? The same thing. He had the nerve to to talk back to God and and mock God saying, what am I, my my brother's keeper? Like, Like I'm responsible for this guy? I don't know where he is. And he lied, by the way. He knew exactly where Abel had gone. He'd killed Abel. He'd murdered him. When Noah woke up in a drunken stupor and realized that he had passed out drunk and naked in front of his own kids, what did he do? It's not my fault. I'm going to curse my grandson. Go figure. What does Aaron do? When the golden calf comes out of the fire and the people are worshiping the golden calf and Moses comes down and he's like, Aaron, what are you doing? And Aaron's like, Hey, it's, just, it's not my fault. You know, I, I, I took some gold, I put it in the fire, and, oh, poof, out came this golden calf. They made me do it. 
He's blaming it on, on, the, on chance and on the pressure of the people. So what we see, and this just goes on and on and on throughout Scripture. As we study the Scriptures, we see the same thing that you and I, that you and I have a tendency to do as well if we study ourselves. We have a tendency to claim to be, on, to be standing on this moral high ground and insist on our own innocence when in fact we are in Death Valley, the lowest place on earth. Morally speaking, when the prophet Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, he was calling this problem out. He was calling out the hypocrisy in which a person claims to be on this moral high ground, and yet they're in, morally speaking, they're in Death Valley. The only way to do that is to turn God's holiness. His, his holy character upside down so that darkness is light and light is darkness and, and good is bad and bad is good. And Isaiah says, you are cursed if this is you. This is the first test that John lays out for the believer, for the true believer. Do we claim to have fellowship with God and yet consistently live our lives as if he doesn't exist. The second if-then clause is used to contrast this first one. He continues in verse 7. But, there's the contrast, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's the second test. The first was, was stated negatively. This one stated in the positive tense. Is this us? Do we walk in the light as he's in the light? The opposite of hypocrisy is authenticity. The opposite of hypocrisy is transparency. The opposite of hypocrisy is honesty. We, we need to understand that to some extent every single one of us as God's people, every single one of us is a hypocrite. And, and we should be hypocrites. Because all of us sin, and we all take a stand against sin. Because God, because He's light, He's revealed our sin to us. And this is why Paul asks the, the, the rhetorical question in, in Romans chapter 7. Why do I do what I don't want to do, and why don't I do what I do want to do? My, my profession isn't lining up with, with my actions. My, my desires aren't, aren't matching up with, with my life, the things that I'm doing. So why do I do what I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things that I do want to do? <clears throat> and I would hope that every single one of us has asked ourselves that same question. Why do I keep doing this? I don't want to do this, but I keep doing it. Why am I doing what I don't want to do? That's the, that's the question that we're forced to ask ourselves when we are supremely concerned with pursuing the will of God in our lives, and yet we're painfully aware that sin is always pulling at us, that sin is always causing us to, to momentarily lose sight of our concern for His will. That's constant temptation that we face. In order to have fellowship with God, we must be where He is. He is in the light. 
So for us to have fellowship with him, we too must live in the light. We have to have a great concern for our, our individual growth in things like personal holiness. We must each have a great concern for being transformed into the likeness of Christ in our character. This fellowship with God thing is serious, serious business. God's holy, and he is not lenient at all when it comes to sin. He's not lenient at all when it comes to walking in darkness. Walking in the light, however, is an absolutely revolutionary concept because it means turning from our instinctive, fallen human tendency to do whatever seems right, whatever, whatever, whatever pleases our eyes in any given moment, whatever seems right to us in any given moment. John says that when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That is, we have koinonia. There's that word again. We have everything that's important in life in common. That is to say, we're all part of a family of orphans who were born as children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and yet, by God's grace, we were adopted as His own. Just out of nothing but grace from God. And the only way to have this fellowship, this true fellowship, with the body of believers, with one another, is to walk in the light. From the moment that Adam and Eve fell into sin, there has been this thing called social hostility. That's the significance of Cain murdering Abel. Such a thing would never, would never have happened in the Garden of Eden. Social hostility, social animosity became the norm as soon as humanity fell under the curse of sin. All of a sudden, after they fall into sin, all of a sudden it was each man or woman for himself. It became a dog-eat-dog world. Immediately, people started breaking up into separate people groups. In other words, not only was fellowship with God lost when Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, but fellowship with our fellow man, was destroyed as well. And only the cross of Jesus Christ can heal this brokenness between different people groups. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What are these two people that, that Paul's talking about here? He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. He's talking about Christians. No, no matter what their, their ethnic or, or racial heritage might be, being made one in Christ Jesus so that there is no separating difference between the two. This is why Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The point is that the cross destroys, it breaks down, it nullifies every ethnic, cultural, 
and social barrier so that the social animosity, the social hostility is defeated and it brings all, all believers onto one level ground in which we have true fellowship with one another so that it doesn't matter what your racial heritage is. It doesn't matter what your social class is. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're free. Everyone who believes in Christ is one. We have fellowship with one another. This theme is big in Paul's writings. It's also a subtle theme in John's writings. But how is this possible when we all know that we sin? Because to sin is not the same as to walk in darkness. To walk in darkness means to be spiritually dead. Unregenerate. It means to be out of fellowship with God entirely. It means to go through life without repentance and without concern for the will of God. To walk in the light, on the other hand, means to live our lives quorum Deo. Quorum Deo, that, if, if you guys remember back on, uh, for our New Year's sermon, that was a term that I introduced uh, to you. Uh, this is what the Christian life is all about, quorum Deo, which means living in the presence of God, by the grace of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. That sums up the entire Christian life. Let me say it again. Living in the presence of God, by the grace of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. This is what it means to walk or to live quorum Deo. And this is the essence. This is what the Christian life is all about. Growing in this. Now there's a hard reality that we must openly confess. And that is the fact that none of us does this consistently. None of us does this Perfectly, even though this is what God's holiness, His holy character demands of us. So how is it possible for us to remain in fellowship both with God and with one another? John tells us right here in verse 7, the answer is the blood of Christ. John tells us the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. How many of you guys, uh, if, if you're looking at your Bibles, how many of you guys, if you, if you look at this verse, there, there's a little asterisk next to that. And if you look at the bottom, it says, oh, except for that one sin that you did. No. That's not, it's not a translation at all. If your translation says that, by the way, throw it out. It cleanses us, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. All. There are no exceptions here. All sin. Not just some, not just the little ones, not just most of our sin. His blood cleanses us from all sin. While walking in darkness and claiming to have fellowship with God or with God's people makes a mockery of God and of fellowship, both with God and with one another, uh, His people. Walking in the light involves being honest about our sin and attempting by, by God's grace... And by His empowering Spirit within us, the Holy Spirit within us, to break free of the hold that sin has in our lives. And this is only made possible by the blood of Christ, by the sacrificial atonement of Christ, the wrath of God toward every sin of His people laid on Jesus when Jesus was on the cross. Every sin was accounted for and punished with an outpouring of God's wrath. And this is why the night before he was betrayed, the night that he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, Jesus was so fearful as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking the Father if there's another way to accomplish this work, to let the cup of God's wrath pass from before him. 
And while our sins were transferred or imputed to Christ, His righteousness was simultaneously imputed to us. And it's by this act of grace and mercy that we, as God's people, are able to remain in fellowship, both with God and with one another. Even though, even though we do slip and stumble into sin, even though our profession doesn't exactly line up with our lives and the things that we do, the blood of Christ reconciled us to God. If we're walking in the light, if we're living our lives with concern for the will of God that is living Coram Deo, Jesus' blood cleanses us. It's his blood, it's his, his grace, an outpouring of his grace that keeps us in fellowship so that our sin, our guilt, our shame don't break that fellowship up. And if we understand what John's saying here, We must use it like a mirror to examine ourselves. Do we walk in the light? Are we demonstrating an increasing conformity to the likeness of Christ? Are we living our lives quorum Deo, in the presence of God? If you were to examine your life, all of it, and look at what happened to your conversion or whatever, you know, whenever you became a Christian, is there a noticeable change? Between then and now? Is there transformation? Has Jesus made a noticeable difference in your life? And is he continuing to do so? John told us, God is light and in him is no darkness. How how much do we resemble? How much do we reflect that light in our lives? Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. He said, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There you go. That's what it means to walk in the light. So the question is, does this describe you? Does your life bear the fruit of light in all that is good, right, and true? Is your life marked by things like goodness, righteousness, and truthfulness? Do the choices that you make throughout your day reflect the fact that you care, that you care supremely about what does and doesn't please the Lord? John makes it very clear for us here that if we claim to have fellowship with God, And yet live our lives as if he doesn't exist. Live our lives in unrepentant darkness. We're lying. And we're on a path that leads to destruction. Our actions speak louder than words. The fruit that we bear, whether good or bad, says it all. On the other hand, if we we walk in the light, that is, if if we live quorum Deo, living our lives in the presence of God, by the grace of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. Then we've passed this test, these first two tests that John has laid out for us, and we can rightfully claim to have fellowship with God and with one another. John wanted his readers to understand that there are significant differences 
between the true believer and somebody who claims to be a believer and yet isn't really. These false teachers, these, these Gnostic teachers who have left this church so confused, they taught that they had fellowship with God, and yet their sinful lifestyle was on display for all to see. It didn't add up. No wonder this church was, was confused. No wonder they had lost the joy of salvation. We must examine the fruit of our lives to see if our actions are consistent with our claims. Many in our culture who profess to have fellowship with God simultaneously live lives that are indistinguishable from the world. And if you were to closely examine their their values and their attitudes, they are the values and the attitudes of the world, which are diametrically opposed to the values of God. If you fear, if you read this and you are afraid that you might be walking in darkness, I would just implore you, I would just beg of you to look to the cross where the love of God, the love of Christ was poured out for you. It is that blood that he shed that will bring and keep you in fellowship with God and with his people. So trust in Jesus if this is you, if you feel like you might be walking in darkness. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his atonement. Trust in what he did on your behalf. I beg you to stop living your life as if God doesn't exist and to just submit yourself to him in faith and obedience. But if you love Christ, if you love Christ, if he is your treasure in life, above and beyond everything else. And if pursuing and doing the will of God is of supreme importance to you, then stand in his grace. Live in his grace. Stand openly and authentically in the light. And by his grace, which sustains and cleanses you, despite all of your imperfections, look to And reflect the light of Christ, who is our perfect Savior, who is our perfect Redeemer, our perfect light, who is the light of life. Because whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. Let's pray. God, this is a reminder of just how much we rely on your grace. Father, we thank you that we have fellowship with you because you sent your Son to bear the wrath that you have against our sin. And our prayer today, Lord, is that we would bear good fruit, that we would bear much good fruit as we abide in your Son, Jesus, knowing that apart from him, We can't do anything. Lord, we pray for the community around us. We pray for our country. Lord, we see darkness coming. And yet we remain confident in the the fact that the darkness cannot overcome the light. We trust in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your blood sustains us 
and that it delivers us. It covers us in order that we may stand before you because of your love for us, because of your sacrifice. May we live lives that reflect your light. May we live Coram Deo in your presence, by your grace, under your authority, and for your glory. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.